Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You are now entering the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, a show that uncovers what's fact, what's fake, and what's fun in the crazy world of pseudo-archaeology. Hello and welcome to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 116. I am your host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, and tonight we analyze in depth the face on Mars. Now, what's the deal with a face on Mars, you might be telling me or saying to me? Or thinking about. Well, here's the deal. I think a lot of us have heard of this one, right? The face on Mars. The idea that there is this structure on the Martian surface that resembles a human face, right? And of course, the follow-up idea that this is the leftovers of maybe not even necessarily an alien race, but proof that Earlier humans that we no longer know of have made journeys to Mars and beyond, right? Did that actually happen? Well, we can all say it together on three. One, two, three. No! But don't you wish it did? Man, I do. And I kind of sort of remember when this first came out. Now, I'm almost too young for kind of the first flush of the face on Mars. And why am I going over this today? It's because I saw it just as I always do, right? You guys have probably heard me say this before. I kind of cruise through the internet every so often just looking for pseudo-archaeology stuff or I keep my ear to the ground as things come up in social media or just pop culture. And the face of Mars came up again. And honestly, I'm so bummed. I forgot where. I just remember noticing, oh, hey, face of Mars. I should do this one. So the backstory to the face on Mars is it's based on a photo taken in 1976 by the Viking One Orbiter. So what's the Viking One Orbiter? The Viking mission from 1976 was a satellite that we shot from the Earth to Mars, and the satellite goes around Mars taking photos. And there was also a lander. I think most of you have probably heard of this based on the Viking lander from 1976. That was the really probably the most famous part of the whole thing, where they actually had a lander go down to the surface of Mars and take photos from the surface of Mars for the first time ever. Really, really cool stuff, right? So... The photo of the face on Mars is not from the lander. It's from the orbiter, right? So there's the satellite that stays in Martian orbit after the lander has gone down. And 
This image, when you see it, you've seen it, I think. It's pretty iconic. It just looks like this sort of face staring straight out into the heavens. It looks like it's kind of part of a square pyramid almost. It's sort of squarish, and then you have this sort of eyes and mouth look to it. Now, loving this story, I was initially worried that I couldn't really do it for this show because I'm like, isn't that part of astronomy? But no, friends, it's a part of xenoarchaeology. That's right, xenoarchaeology, spelled with an X. And this is a science where if somebody is looking for extraterrestrial cultures and their remains, you are then a xenoarchaeologist. So I can wrangle myself into this by putting on my xenoarchaeology hat for a day. So I count. So this photo comes out, and of course, every pseudo-archaeologist goes way down the rabbit hole on this, and they look around the area, and there's also sort of vaguely pyramid-shaped structures. We refer to them as hills in modern English. But you put those all together, and of course, this is some sort of not just singular Martian face, but evidence of complex societies that have built multiple structures. Now, unfortunately, technology gets better and they sent more satellites to Mars to take more photos, like the Mars Global Surveyor and the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, those guys in the early 2000s. Why am I so against them? Because they destroyed my face on Mars. And what I mean by that is they took pictures with better pixels. And you could tell it was just hills. Boo. Boo, Mars Global Surveyor. So to give you guys an idea, this is what's so crazy about technology. Those photos from 1976, the best ones, were at a resolution of about 50 meters per pixel. So we're talking about like, Imagine a square of 160 feet, you know, or more. A lot of those photos are even worse. That's kind of at its best. That would be a single pixel. So you can see how this face on Mars would have been created. It's a, it's a combination of the shadows on the natural surface at a certain time of day and the pixel count being really low. The later images by like the Mars Global Surveyor, you're looking at like one pixel per meter or even better. See, so you just have such better resolution. And then it's sort of like, uh, it shows you for sure that there is no such thing as a face on Mars. Again, doesn't that bum you out? I want there to be a face on Mars. Can I have one of these? I keep asking that to science. And science keeps saying no. Stupid science. But we can have a little fun with how we perceive these things. The term pareidolia means that we as humans put meaning into meaninglessness, right? So if we see a cloud and we go, oh, that looks like a hot dog, you know, or we see images on toast and we think they look like Jesus, those are all examples of that, right? Our brain just sort of does this thing. And it does make life more worth living, right? But it is ultimately just making 
meaning out of a meaningless optical illusion. So that's what you have with the face on Mars. Now, even though it was disproven in the early 2000s, and again, in a very simple way, you just see updated images. You go, oh, yeah, there's no face. Damn it. You know, of course, this story never will ever, ever, ever end. But part of me does kind of want to keep it in my pocket just for fun, you know, and check this out. I really like it when books or science fiction use stuff like the face on Mars as a backdrop. You know, I just think it's fun and stuff like that. You know, this is where we can have fun with these kinds of things in what I would call like a correct manner or a manner that makes sense where we don't take it too seriously, where we have a little fun with it. And there is one example of this in my life that I think really did this well. And that example is, of course, Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders. What is Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders? Are you serious, Kinkella? Yes, I am. And you're going to have to wait for the break in order to figure out what Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders actually is. Hey, Archaeology Podcast fans. Anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes. Welcome back to the Pseudoarchaeology Podcast, episode 116. I am still your host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, and we are talking about the face on Mars. And actually, we've pretty much already talked about it. But what we haven't dealt with is Zach McCracken and the alien mindbenders. Now, a little backstory to some of this. I know this is going to be very exciting and shocking to you at the same time. But when I was growing up, I was kind of nerdy. Oh, yeah. Let's just be. It's time. I know I'm around friends. Yeah. Kind of a nerdy dude. And in my nerddom, I was really into astronomy. I actually had a telescope. I'm one of the rare people on Earth who actually saw Halley's Comet in 1986, 1987. And I also had a subscription to Astronomy Magazine, right? So I was really into all this stuff. And sure, the young teenage me totally knew that there was no such thing as a face on Mars. But I loved the whole idea of astronomy. I loved things like the Viking mission. And I think as I brought up before, I loved the show In Search Of. Even though I knew it was all full of it, I just loved thinking about this kind of stuff. You know, and on top of just a joy for science as a teen in the early mid 1980s, I also like comedy. You know, I was a huge fan of like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. My favorite book of all time is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And so I like it when creative people can use pseudo-archaeological concepts, be they the face on Mars, be they that the Sphinx is way older than we think, be they that we've been 
contacted by aliens, right? Basically everything this show is about. I like it when it's used to take me on a journey through story that's just sort of fun and lighthearted. So this video game came out in 1988, and it was called Zack McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders. So what's the deal with this video game? This video game came out for the Commodore 64. Now, any of you who are like, I don't know, 45 years old and younger, you have no idea what that is. So a Commodore 64 was like the early days of computing, you guys. This is before the world was just Apple Macs and IBM PCs, right? We're in a world of that. We're just, we, there's basically two kinds of computers. Yes, I know for the PCs, different companies make them, but it's all, it all has the same operating system. You know what I mean? In the 80s, it wasn't really like that. There were all these other ones. There was like the TRS-80 that we all called the Trash-80, right? The Commodore 64, the Commodore 128. There was Apple products like the Apple IIe. That's the world of the early 1980s in terms of computers, right? It's still where it's like it hasn't really been standardized yet. And it was like, oh, you're a Commodore 64 family, you know? And like the rich kids were like an Apple family. That's that world. It's very different. It's funny. I haven't seen mm, like shows on TV at all that really capture this quite yet. And if you own something, any, any of these computers basically ran the same, which is if you wanted to run a program on them, such as the video game, Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders, what you had to do was first buy the game or the program. It would come on a floppy disk. Floppy disks were big. They were like four and a half inches by four and a half inches. And they're super flat and wiggly. You know, they were floppy. And you would put it in the disk drive. And then it would have to load. And as you played a video game or ran a program, it would constantly have to load every like 20 seconds as it needed more information. So in the case of the video game, every time you like walked into a new room, before you got there, it would go, and that was the disk drive, which you bought separately, right? You would buy, you had to buy the computer, then the disk drive and a monitor all separate for the equivalent of what I'm sure would be like $1,800 today or something. Dude, you guys, it was insane. The video games themselves were like 50 bucks in 1987. You know, so these are expensive propositions. You didn't get one of these every day. But games always progressed slowly, right? You would sort of do one thing in a room and then you'd walk the character to the right side or left side of the screen. And that would be them walking into a new room and then it would load. And then the screen would change and you'd be in a new room. It was very two dimensional. I think you would call it a point and click adventure game, uh, but very early. And also on the screen, so you have a very simple screen, you know, pixels are really huge. And you have like at the bottom of the screen, several different statements like go left, pick up the torch, you know, or whatever. And you would kind of click on those and the character in there who you're playing, Zach McCracken, who's sort of a swashbuckling Indiana Jones type as you go through this game. 
And so this would take you like all afternoon just to barely get anywhere. This game came out in 1988, right? So I'm like 15 or 16 years old. I don't got a girlfriend. You know, I'm totally lame. So I buy this game, but it goes with that same vibe of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or this kind of thing. It was produced through Lucasfilm, which I believe they were called LucasArts, that wing of Lucasfilm. And what I thought was really great about that company at that time is they would make games that had some humor in them. That was really rare to find, you guys, in like the 80s. It's like a video game with humor in it, you know, and and it had some sort of story in it, some sort of story with some sort of weight. The game that came before Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders was Maniac Mansion. That came out maybe the year before, maybe 87 or something like that. And that one was huge. It even spawned, I think, a sitcom that ran for a couple years. And you guys might have heard that name Maniac Mansion before. Now, Maniac Mansion was built upon kind of all the B-movie stereotypes, kind of the 1950s monster movie, that kind of thing, right? And what made it fun and funny was they played on all those kind of tropes and all those kind of cliches of late 1950s monster movie mania, you know? And that game was a really big hit. So LucasArts thought they'd do the same thing again. And this time, instead of doing like 1950s B-movie monster stuff, they're like, dude, we're going to mine the pseudo-archaeology world. So they put in everything that you and I love and hate at the same time, right? They're going to put in the face on Mars. They're going to put in the pyramids. They're going to put in Stonehenge. They're going to put in aliens, as in alien mind benders, right? They're going to use every trope and cliche. It's like they just went right through Chariots of the Gods and just picked out all the stuff. Oh, they even do like a Maya thing in there too, right? They they take it all out and they're like, we're going to have fun with this. And I love the idea, you guys. I think the idea is genius. Now, what did the buying public think? They were lukewarm at best because, you guys, they were too early on with their idea. This idea of this kind of really fun pseudo-archaeology world where you have this hero going through it and trying to pick stuff up and trying to figure out mysteries and stuff and sort of going on adventures in this point-and-click adventure world. The computer couldn't keep up with it, man. The programming couldn't keep up with it. So you end up just going like room by room, super slow. And you get to the next place. And there were also so many holes in the game, too. Like, oh, there was also the Bermuda Triangle. If you did things wrong, you could get in a plane and just be flying to the Bermuda Triangle forever. Or... You could go to Mars and go to the face on Mars. That's that's what reminded me of all this, right? The Zach McCracken had a face on Mars and you could go there and you could go into the face on Mars. It had like a doorway. You'd like go inside. And of course, there's this like alien computer room, but you could get there and then just run out of oxygen. And it wasn't like video games today. Video games today, you can like just cruise around in that world. You guys know what I mean? Like on Minecraft, 
you can just enjoy the world of Minecraft. And there's so many video games like that today, right? Where you can just kind of fly around for a while or like ride a horse for a while. And it's all three-dimensional. And one of the joys is just kind of letting your mind wander, right? On some of these games, you can just make like a campfire and hang out by a river all night. If we had had that kind of technology in 1988, Zach McCracken would have kicked ass. It would have been so much fun, but we didn't. It did have great ideas though. As I said, you could go into the face on Mars and had like a doorway in the side. You could also go into the Sphinx, right? And of course, both of the rooms in these two places were similar and you had to kind of figure out how to use clues you got in both places to sort of ultimately the idea of the video game was, of course, to stop the alien mind benders from bending everyone's mind. I looked over a couple things online about Zach McCracken, just so I could remind myself of the time. There was one thing that I, I hadn't realized that the idea of the aliens, what they were doing, how they were bending humans' minds was they were sending a 60-cycle hum basically across the world. And for any of you who play guitar, single coils on a guitar produce a 60-cycle hum. So I just thought that was kind of funny, right? It's one of those things where they just have humor all over the place. And you're ultimately, the, the core thing to find in Zach McCracken are, of course, crystals. I think there's three crystals you have to find and you put them all together. And then that, of course, turns off the 60-cycle hum. Even though this video game came out in 1988, it is supposedly taking place in the far-off world of 1997. So even there, right, they, they put it, you know, nine years in the future. It's, it's got a lot of lighthearted fun. I find it super, super attractive, right? I love stuff like that. This is how pseudo-archaeology should be done, right? I think in terms of technology and just sort of the video game going public in general, this game, along with Maniac Mansion, kind of provides a link between stuff that had come before. There was a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy game that was a text adventure, right? We had those before, these kind of point-and-click ones. So there's still some text in this game, but there's imagery. The Hitchhiker's Guide game was purely text. And I used to love those, right? Those kind of things. But Zach McCracken provides a link to later things like Mist. Right, that game. If you guys know that world, that's sort of the next layer up where now we have a little bit more three dimensionality. Now we can kind of cruise around in these worlds a, a little bit more. It would have made it so much better if we could even see like a three dimensional map in Zach McCracken of maybe the, the world and of Mars, right? Where we see like, oh, okay, we go to Stonehenge, there it is. We go to the pyramids of Egypt. There's the Bermuda Triangle. Ooh, there's the face of Mars on Mars. Oh, there's Easter Island. There's a part with the Moy, of course. And actually, even Elvis comes in a little bit. I mean, what again, what's not to like? This game that had such good ideas. You guys, I think this is my favorite way so far that I've found to use the foolishness of pseudo-archaeology for something positive. And when we come back, 
my final thoughts on the face on Mars and Zach McCracken and the alien mindbenders. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 116. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, and we have been talking about not only the face on Mars, but also the 1980s video game Zack McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders. And if you haven't figured this out yet, I would love if they came out with Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders 2023 edition, right? And they could add even more. Again, every single pseudo-archaeology thing that I have ever gone over. Man, you could put the Piri Rees map in that. They don't even touch on Atlantis, I don't think. You throw Atlantis in there. I mean, let's just go down the list of my shows, right? Put it all in there. Everything, right? Chock full. Every single pseudo-archaeology story shrouded to rim right on in there, right? We can have the comet come down for the younger Dryas and all that. Uh, it's just, I mean, it writes itself in a way, and it just feels like so much fun. and. That gets into the kind of philosophy of this whole thing where I think the best way to combat just the foolishness of pseudo-archaeology is to have fun and joke with it, right? Because if you come out with a modern Zach McCracken, I mean, that's the whole thing. There's no defense against getting laughed at, you know? And I think that most archaeologists, when they're trying to battle Graham Hancock or that kind of thing, they're taking the wrong path because they're way too serious. You know, they're, they're taking him on point by point. Well, you know, the comet could have never happened. And yeah, we know the comet would never happen, but that's boring. But if you make it funny, you know, if you make a video game where you can hang out in the face on Mars... Dude, I'm all in. And I think the general public would be too, right? Please, please, please go with my genius, right? Oh, I would love to be a part of that. Oh, my dream. Video game producers out there. Can I be a creative consultant? Oh, right? Just all that stuff. Put it all in. And you and you could like tease it together to make a whole adventure story out of where you can start at a certain place and and then you get more clues as you go. And I totally think they should keep the background with the crystals. Like, you got to find some crystals. Man, I mean, aren't you guys into that? Doesn't it just sound like the coolest thing? It would heal the wounds of all 1980s kids who had to play every terrible video game ever made. If you guys have ever heard of famous terrible video games from that time, like E.T., my friend actually had E.T. for their Atari 2600. I played E.T. And I will say that it was bad, but there were other video games that were equally as bad as E.T. E.T. was just famous for being like so bad that it was like recalled. And there's this famous story that it was basically a bunch of copies of it were thrown into a landfill 
<laughs> but of like new copies, you know, because they were taking it off the market because it got such terrible reviews. I don't know. I thought it was equally terrible to a bunch of others. But we've also changed a bit as a culture, you know. I, I think we've lost some of our, our ability just to have fun and be funny. You know what I mean? In the 80s, again, I was a kid then, but we were into this kind of stuff, right? We were into lighthearted stuff. Like, I remember playing with a Ouija board and nobody took it seriously. Nobody took it seriously, but it was great, great fun, right? We were just like laughing the whole time. Do people play with Ouija boards like that today in a funny way? Or are they just like serious all the time? I don't know. You know, another thing about LucasArts, of course, they would have copyright to the Lucasfilm movies. And so I believe the next video game after Zack McCracken. So it goes Maniac Mansion, Zack McCracken, and then Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Right. So they did a video game version. And I don't think it was that great. But that also brings me to another moment in time as we talk about sort of the late 1980s and video games and the technology and that kind of stuff. I'm going to leave for college in the fall of 1990. So by the time the 80s is closing out, so is my interest in video games and that kind of world, right? And my Commodore 64 was becoming just a complete joke. There was a huge change, I would say, in technology right around then, too, when I left for college. Like, I remember my freshman year, some people had, like, by that time, you could have, like, a Macintosh, like the boxy Apple computers, you know? That was what I would call a real computer, where you could actually do word processing, where you, and you could even play video games, and every time you left a room, you wouldn't have to be like, rum, 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 rum. you know, it would, it would play in a smooth manner. So there really was a sea change there. The world of like 1988 computer usage versus the world of like 1991 computer usage is huge. Man, even if Zach McCracken came out like five years later, you know, I would think it would have gotten more traction, but it's just, it's lack of computing ability to make real it's really awesome grandiose ideas what it was it's achilles heel right that ultimately did it in so it didn't do that good it's been largely forgotten by history i will link below this podcast called retronauts where they did go over zach mccracken and i really appreciate them they are like serious gaming nerds although i think they're younger than me. I think they're in their 30s or something. So I don't know if they actually had the experience that I did of being there at the time of buying Zach McCracken. And I think you still had to buy video games largely at Toys R Us. I, there might have been other outlets, but I remember doing that. So you can see how all this stuff would be coming to a head as I became a junior or senior in high school. It's like, dude, I don't want to go to Toys R Us anymore, right? I don't want to be a kid. You know, kids play video games. So I went to college. I left my Commodore 64 behind. I left video gaming behind. I forgot about Zach McCracken and the alien mind benders for about like 25 years. But then in researching for the face on Mars, 
at first I was like, man, I can't talk about the face on Mars for like 40 minutes. And at the same time, I was like, wait, I remember a video game that had face of Mars in it. And I really dug it. What was that? So that is why, my friends, I've let you enjoy a little bit about Zach McCracken and the alien mindbenders. And with that, I'll talk to you guys next time. Oh, wait, one last thing. Did I ever finish the video game Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders? No. I got totally lost. I was on a plane in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle. I didn't go anywhere. And then I ran out of oxygen on Mars. So how does it end? I have no idea. Thanks for listening to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast. Please like and subscribe wherever you like and subscribe. And if you have questions for me, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, feel free to reach out using the links below or go to my YouTube channel, Kinkella Teaches Archaeology. See you guys next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.